This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Thanks, no, David. Uh, before we jump into the sermon, even though this isn't our custom to do this, I feel the need to pray again. Because as I read the word with you, I began to see again how religious I am. So I feel like a hypocrite even pre- preaching the sermon. So let's just quickly pray again. Father in heaven, I'm thankful to be with my brothers and sisters here, and we long for you to speak to us by your word, through your spirit. And so, Father, we're thankful that your grace is rich enough and full enough and complete enough to handle the sin that we bring to the table. Father, take the scales off of our eyes, give us the ability to repent like this beautiful tax collector in this story, and give us courage to find our home in you. And give me the grace and the power and the authority from you to preach your gospel clearly. And we praise your blessed name. Amen. Even though I'm South Asian, I bet my story growing up in a Hindu home isn't that different from yours, and let me explain why. Even though I grew up at the age of three eating fish heads and picking the bones out, as gross as that might sound to you, like many of you, I grew up seeking validation, approval, security, identity, and a stamp that I'm okay from my parents. You see, from the early age, most of us behave in certain patterns participate in specific activities, adopted specific cultural norms, embraced specific moral codes and standards, went to specific schools, chose certain career paths, made life-altering decisions all around this ambiguous world of finding our validation, our approval, our security, our identity, and a stamp that we're okay from our parents. Even those of us who've come from undesirable homes where parents abused us and abandoned us, often these parents still have power over us. It's inverse, but it's there. Well, you operate into the world in weakness saying, I'll show them. I can amount to something. I will do something with my life. I will be somebody. I'm going to love my kids. I'm going to be a friend to my spouse. You see, we share this universal problem of looking for approval and validation and identity and so many things in this trajectory our parents give to us. So it's a, it transcends, transcends every aspect of our lives. For example, you go, okay, once I'm in school or this specific school, it's going to be okay. Or if I can just get that internship or that job 
or, or get married or have that child or that promotion or that specific status in my field of work or that home, and then I'm going to be validated. Then I'm going to be okay. Then I'll have security, and then I'll be at home. But it's even worse than that. You know, that universal problem of finding validation, security, and identity in a stamp they're okay bleeds into every aspect of our life. We begin to self-talk. I'm okay because I'm nice, or I'm helpful, or I'm skinny, or I'm attractive, or I'm polite, or I'm hardworking, or I'm smart, or I eat organically. On the surface, Luke 18 doesn't seem to have anything to do with this problem. You see these tightly wound religious professionals who trusted themselves, and they thought they were righteous. Now, what self-respecting modern person in this room walks around going, well, I am pretty righteous. No, none of us operate that way. But as we begin to see in the text that they constructed for themselves a system, a world where they can find validation. And this righteousness they're looking for is really just that security, that identity, that approval, that stamp that they're okay. We begin to see that this passage has everything to do with us. And we're not that different from the man of this story that Jesus constructed for. You see, whether you've been going to city church since its inception or recently... Whether you consider yourself a diehard Christian or one who's exploring Christianity, you begin to see from this passage that religion is a very, very dangerous thing. And what Jesus does here is magnificent. He contrasts religion on the one hand from repentance. He contrasts religion on one hand from the gospel. And he begins to invite us that the only place we can find lasting, life-giving validation, approval, security, and identity, and a stamp that you're okay is in him. So this morning we're going to look at two things briefly. The problem of religion and the solution of repentance. First, the problem of religion. We could say a lot of things about religion from this text, but the first thing I want to say is religion is full of self-absorption. We quickly see from the story that Jesus constructs that this Pharisee is standing by himself. We could better render it he stationed himself. You see, in the temple, when men would go to pray, there's all these levels. There's the court for the Gentiles and women, and then there's the inner court, where if you're a man of good standing, a Pharisee, you could walk to the front and be seen by all to pray. And quickly, you see that he felt worthy to press forward, to go to the very front, to be seen by all as a man worthy to be in the presence of God and to pray. We quickly see, and we can assume from the text, that this man's a Pharisee, because the story is constructed for Pharisees. And this And he's a respectable man. He's a sincere man. As a Pharisee in that culture, he'd be a lover of God's word. He'd be a faithful husband and father. He'd be extremely generous. If he's giving a tenth of all that he has, he's giving a lot of money away. And clearly, he's very thoughtful if he's a Pharisee because he's trying to figure out how to live God's word out in his own society. Here's the problem when you're that great of a man or woman. You start believing your own press. And start being full of God's grace and kindness, we can quickly be full of ourselves questions for you. How consumed are you about yourself? How much do your thoughts and anxiety revolve around you as opposed to others? How full of you are of yourself? Let me do a quick sidebar here. There's a lot of you who are self-loathers. You literally hate yourself. And you feel like, well, I really have nothing to do with this religious professional because I don't feel like I'm righteous. Actually, I, I really hate who I am. And if that's you, it may be because you're just as self-absorbed and religious. You hate yourself for not being good enough. 
You find it difficult to keep up with the constructs that have been constructed for you. And since you can't keep up with your religious ideals, and since you can't find your validation and approval and identity and stamp that you're okay from your religious performance and your morality, you hate yourself. There's other forms of the self-loathing. It can look like anger and cynicism. It looks like despondency or denial or even anxiety. But if you're a self-loather in this room, how much do you think about yourself? You'll quickly see that you and the Pharisee have a lot in common. We see that religion is not only full of self-absorption, we'll also see that religion is full of self-righteousness. Again, these men that the story was constructed for by Jesus treated others with contempt, meaning they despised them. They looked down upon them. You might not know this from watching my son run around, but he was born with a birth defect, club feet, meaning, you know, when, you, when your baby comes out, their feet kind of look like this. His feet looked like this, okay? And we knew that going ahead of time. And when the baby was born, we're like, there he is. There's his feet. And so from his first week of life, every week, he had his feet casted. And he slowly turned his feet out over a course of three to six months. And his feet are fine, and he has a great old time playing ball these days. Now, what's interesting is when, from the first week of his life, anytime we took Jacob somewhere, there is this cute little guy in his car seat, came out about six pounds, and he had these huge casts going from his hip all the way to his toes. And so, you know, we just did life together. We were trying to figure out how to be parents and love our son in the midst of his birth defect. And we just caught him around his big cast, sticking out of his car seat everywhere. And one morning or afternoon, Kim and I are in Panera just hanging out with our son, trying to figure out what to do. Uh, This woman comes by. She was attractive, older than us, stately, together. And she walked up with the most deepest concern for us. And she said, your child is a precious gift and you need to take better care of your child. And she walks off. Now, I can't begin to explain to you the rage I felt that moment. (laughs) I want to destroy her and condemn her, but that's, the sermon's not about that. (laughs) When you get self-righteous, you start to look down on others. You get a quick high off of it. It's like you're taking a drug. She got to go away from interacting with my wife and I feeling great about her parenting. She wasn't a careless mother. She took care of her little baby. Her little baby never wore casts from the hip all the way down to the toes. She was getting her righteousness in that moment out of her perceived um, superiority, her elevation compared to my wife and I. As much as I'd like to throw this woman under the bus right now, I'm just like her. Uh, the, you know, my wife asked me, where's the sermon convicting you the most last night? And I said, here because I'm that religious, self-righteous Pharisee. And I want to look down others to find a quick high. And I don't limit to any area of my life. I don't want to box myself in. If I can find any area where I feel better than you, I will immediately go to that area in my mind so I can feel better than you and feel righteous and validated and secure and find myself in an elevated position. How do you look down on others? Where do you go to find that quick high? Could it be your birthing and parenting preferences, your Bible knowledge, your discipline techniques that might not be in the scriptures at all, your food choice and how organic you are, proper theological and philosophical lingo to fit in at City Church, your decorating style in your home, the cleanliness of your home. How many times before we have someone over, you run around and put vacuum marks on the carpets Specific cultural manners that are fitting for the station you are in life. 
your fashion and your stylishness, your healthiness and your waistline, how good a friend you are, your relative handiness in the home, your abilities with investment and shrewd financial skills, your assets, your vehicles, your technological toys. What do you use to elevate yourself for a quick high? Religion is not only self-absorption and self-righteousness. Religion is full of self-promotion. The the Pharisee said he prayed thus. And this is a difficult word to translate. It's intentionally ambiguous. But here's a, a more literal way of rendering it. He prayed with himself or to himself or about himself or for himself. Um, as one commentator put it, he forgot his errand. He's like me. He went to the grocery store and he forgot what he was there for. And he's trying to call his wife and figure out what he did, but he's not even trying to call his wife. He went to pray to God and he ended up start talking about himself the entire time. You know, this is what he first began to say. I fast twice a week. Now fasting is only commanded in the Old Testament one day the entire whole year. It's the day of atonement. Now, the Pharisees at that time added two things. They added fasting on Monday and Thursday because it said that Moses and descended from Mount Sinai on those days. So the Pharisees at that time created a controllable, manageable religious construct which they can achieve and reach. And this specific Pharisee praises himself for going the extra mile and reaching that religious construct. He goes on to say, I give a tithe of all that again. Again, tithing is commanded in scripture. We are to give a 10% of our first fruits of our products and income to our God. But he goes further. He tithes on stuff the scriptures don't even talk about. And he's created a construct again that he can reach. I'm not going to just tithe from my first fruits. I'm going to tithe everything that I have. So I can go beyond what the word of God has for me. And again, he focuses on what he's done. And he finds his identity there. But this Pharisee is focused on what he's done, but look at what he's not doing. Is God getting any of the credit for this? No. Is there any focus on what he's done poorly? No. This is what religion looks like in prayer. Well, what about you? When you pray, what do you focus on the most? Does your heart heat up on what you've done and who you are? Do you consciously or subconsciously feel or feed off your religious success? Or do you account what you've not done and who you are not? Do you celebrate and promote the work of Jesus on your behalf? Or do you celebrate who you are? Religion is full of self-absorption, self-righteousness, and self-promotion. The last thing I want you to see is religion is full of self-deception. Look at his prayer again. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Now, this is actually a typical pattern or form of prayer at that time. There's a specific figure, teacher in that time named Rabbi Judah, and he instituted and propagated this form of prayer. His prayer would go something like this. God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, an unlearned man, nor a woman. Ouch. The real question is who talks like this? I mean, who walks around saying, I'm great. I'm fantastic. God, you're, you're so, you should be so glad to have me. Some of you may notice, you probably can't tell in the light up here, but I'm going gray, which may I add as Ted walked through the series on Proverbs as a sign of wisdom. Now, it'd be rather odd for me to be walking around going, hey, I'm gray. Did you notice how gray I am? You know, I mean, it'd be weird, it'd be odd, and I don't walk around talking about how gray I am or how wise, except for this very moment. Um, but who needs to walk around saying that they're great? People who deep down know they're not great. 
People who are deeply insecure, looking for validation and security and identity and that stamp, they're okay. Or people totally self-deceived. Look at his prayer again. God, thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, clearly, he had seen this tax collector walking by into that prominent spot and location. And it's actually maybe true. He probably does not steal, and he's faithful to his wife, nor does he extort people for income. But what's absent in this prayer of his? His heart. He's totally focused on his outward behavior. He could be praying, God, I'm not compassionate. I'm not loving as I ought to be. I lack patience. I am not slow to anger. I struggle with being kind and gentle. Father, to be honest with you, I hate when I don't get my way. He could have been thinking about that morning. Even on the way to the temple, Father, when I took the bypass to go around the city and go in the eastern gate, there's that cart with two oxen that pulled over and cut me off, and me and my donkey were strained on the side of the road, and I was filled with road rage. He could have prayed that. He didn't pray that. Here's the problem with religious self-deception. When we think we're okay and validated and approved and secure in what we've done and who we've made ourselves, then we no longer owe God, but God owes us. He's fortunate to have us on his team. Religious people often obey to get stuff from God. Sure, it makes us feel better when we can hit certain milestones or achieve certain constructs, but in our self-deception, we want to God to deliver since we've been on his team. Because we made certain sacrifices, because we made certain choices, he now owes us and needs to deliver. It's like a Christianized form of karma. There's these scales, and clearly since we're so great and we're putting all these weights on this side of the scale, God must now deliver for us. We often try to manipulate God and control him and to make him do things we want him to do. How do you know if you're religious and self-deceived? What do you do with suffering? When things don't go your way or according to your plan, what do you do? What happens to your prayer life and or your heart when God does not deliver exactly what you want? Do you typically pray what you want or need or over your wayward heart and what you need God to do inside of it? Do you focus on your outward behavior or sort of the inward issues of your heart? Maybe your lack of character or your need for grace and power. We religious Americans typically believe in a therapeutic God who lives to cater to all our needs and exists, and he exists to make us happy. He's like the genie from Aladdin. And we will obey if it helps us to get what we want. But if God and his loving, wise plans goes off script and does something that we find harmful, we're done with him. The beautiful thing here is even though religion is a real problem in our lives, whether we identify with Jesus or not, whether we've been coming to City Church a long time or not, whether we see ourselves as a Christian or not, we see that Jesus offers us a solution in the gospel. And the solution he gives us in this passage is repentance. The word for repentance has lots of negative connotations for us. But hang in there. When you're done looking at this tax collector, you'll see that repentance allows you to be a normal human being who walks with honesty, humility, and power. The first thing I want you to see from this tax collector is repentance is full of self-awareness. Again, he's standing far off. In contrast to the Pharisee who stationed himself close to the most obvious place where he can have attention in his prayer, he has this tax collector an unstated posture. He's unworthy. He's about as far away as he can technically be, yet still be technically able to pray in the temple. So if there's a zone in the temple where it's acceptable for you to pray, he's in the outer realm of that zone because he doesn't feel worthy to press in. 
He's a tax collector. In that culture and age, he's almost like a turncoat. He sold out his loyalties to his country, and he works for the Roman Empire, and he collects collects money. He probably does live a life of adultery. He is known for theft and extortion. And so those are real things in his life. And I think he's connected to that reality. He he knows he brings nothing to the table. He knows he owes, that God owes him nothing. And so he comes in prayer with no pretense, self-promotion, self-deception, and self-righteousness. He also understands that his life of irreligion has not given him the validation that he needs, the identity, that stamp he needs. Hence, he's in the temple begging for mercy from God. He goes on, the passage goes on, say he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. It's a double negative. Literally, he was not even willing. He's emotionally connected to the reality, and it's affecting his heart's emotions of his sin. And again, the passage says, God, pardon me, a sinner. Again, this is a poor rendering. The Greek literally says he's the sinner, the great sinner. The tax collector understands sin. It's more than breaking rules. It's more than being good and not good. It's more than recognizing you've broken, moved beyond God's law. It's recognizing that you're trying to find your validation, your approval, your security, your identity, that stamp that you're okay, and anything and everything apart from God's grace, even the good things in your life. He does not see his sin as a mere behavioral problem, which it is for him, but a relational one where he's failed to make his home in the grace and the kindness of God in Christ. Repentance is connecting the fact that you're a human being and the sinner, that you're the one Jesus had to die on the cross for, that your sin was so gross that it required Jesus not only to love the Father and obey him and live righteously, but sit on a tree and have the wrath of God poured out on him. You, your sin necessitated that reality. You also begin to realize you're a total mess and that God's invasive heart surgery starts with, for you, starts with Jesus being crushed on the cross for you. Let me bring this home real quickly. Do you think you're a sinner or the sinner? When you pray, does your prayer reflect that you think you're a sinner or the sinner that Jesus needed to die and love? But repentance goes on more than just being full of self-awareness. It's also being full of sorrow. He beat his breast. It's a sign of contrition and grief in that culture. He's totally emotionally engaged with his heart and sin. Uh, the word here for saying could be connected with a deep sigh. It's weighing on him. This is no longer an intellectual or cerebral exercise for him. You see, in repentance, you feel the weight of your sin. You see how it's harmed you, and it grieves you. There's just real sorrow in your life. But also, you begin to see how it's harmed others, not just you, which creates even more sorrow in your life. See, real human repentance goes beyond cerebral understanding and confession. It's a journey of the heart where you see that which you have loved the most is slowly killing you and the ones that you love. And you're not growing to do, well, you want nothing to do with that very thing that you've fallen in love with. When you pray, do you feel the weight of your sin? Is there genuine emotion to your repentance? Do you feel not just see the impact it has on you and your loved ones? And does it create a posture of humility and softness before you and your God? Finally, uh, repentance is more than self-awareness and sorrow. Repentance is full of supplication. I love what the, the tax collector says here. He says, be merciful 
But literally, he says, be propitious. This is a very key word that's rarely seen in the New Testament. He's saying, God, make pardon. God, make atonement for me. This word finds meaning in only one place in his whole world and reality. This word of atonement makes only place on the, makes sense in the mercy seat. And the mercy seat says covering that went over the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is in the center of the temple in the most holy of holy places. The Ark of Covenant is technically where the, the, the law is held. And it's the footstool for God in his presence to put his feet on. And the mercy seat is on top of that. And once a year, the high priest will go into that holy of holy place and make a sacrifice, a substitution, longing for atonement, recognizing that all of God's people have sinned and deserve wrath and condemnation, but only God can forgive and make atonement. He needs a substitute for his sins. Now, why does Jesus tell this story? Because in the gospel, he becomes the great sinner and he is the substitute for our sins. In the gospel, he didn't wait for us to try to figure things out because he knew he couldn't. In the gospel, he moved towards us in his kindness and his grace. And he loved his heavenly father as a human being on this earth, constantly adoring him and doing his will. And he came as our stand-in, as a human being, as God himself. And he died on the cross. For those of us doing city Bible reading, it's horrific what happens on an atonement. A a sacrifice is made. An ox is brought in uh, before the priest, and the priest would have you put your hand on it, identifying your sin upon that ox. And his throat would be cut, and his body is cut into pieces, and there's this huge fire, and there's a huge sacrifice. And when you begin to understand the ramifications of what the priest has to do, you begin to see the altars covered with blood. The priest is covered in blood. Day in, day out, when you make sacrifice, you begin to recognize, I am unclean and I am covered with blood and I need a greater blood to cover me. And that is what Jesus did on the cross. It's not that his blood covers you, it's his righteousness covers you. Jesus takes his, our wrath, the wrath we deserve, and in his place, he gives his standing and his father's pleasure. We finally get the approval and the identity and the security and stamp that we're okay, that we've been longing for. So when you pray... Do you take your sins to this man who loves you, bled for you, who lives for you now? Do you see how he has pardoned all your sins? Do you celebrate his righteous work on the cross? What I love about this passage is you see the gospel at work. Who goes home justified? Who goes home pronounced and declared righteous? Not the religious professional, but the tax collector, the man who owned his sins and recognized he needed atonement. Look what Jesus says. For everyone who exalts himself must, will be humbled. Exalts literally means to lift up. If you lift yourself up, God, the most loving and gracious thing he can do is humble you and lower you. Because when you lift yourself up, you're becoming inhuman. And you're wandering away from his grace and kindness. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you lower yourself and humble yourself and repent, God and his grace can't help but lift you up and exalt you. Because when you go and lower yourself, God's grace lifts you up. Jesus lifts you up because Jesus has given you absolutely everything. 
In the gospel, you finally have the approval, validation, satisfaction, identity you're looking for. You have that stamp that's been given to you. You finally have that stable place to attach yourself and not be tossed around. You can be a totally messed up human being and transformed by God's grace. It no longer matters how religious you are or are not, how well you obeyed this morning or you didn't, how well you prayed this morning or you did not, how much you've tithed or you have not tithed. What matters is a life and work and death and rest resurrection and ascension of Jesus for you. It doesn't matter how your heart longs for him or not. What matters is Jesus has stood in that place and his heart is full of you and he has given you everything that he has. And when the father looks on you, you are dressed in Jesus and he can't get enough of you. See, in repentance, you get to sit in that place and find home and be freed from religion and live in that validation that does not disappoint. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know what it means to be religious. My friends and I, we, we know what it means to construct things to find our identity in. And we long for you to teach us more and more and more what it is to repent and to celebrate your cross, to celebrate your grace, to celebrate your righteousness and find our home and validation and security and our identity there. Father, we don't taste enough your resurrection, your life, your righteousness for us. And we beg you to give us eyes to see what we have in you, that we would humble ourselves and have you lift us up. We pray this in your blessed name, Jesus. Amen.